Hi, folks. We're back for part three of our series on the Mary Celeste. We'd like to thank tonight's sponsors, Blue Apron, Stamps.com, Indochino, and The Great Courses Plus. Listen for special offers in tonight's episode. We'd like to remind everyone that by our new schedule, this is our third show in a row and will be dark next week. However, we'll be back August 31st with the first show of another three-week run. And now a special message for one of our assets in the field. back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Duty is the great business of a sea officer. All private considerations must give way to it, however painful it may be. Lord Horatio Nelson. Join us tonight for the last part in our series on the Mary Celeste. Okay, so it's time to talk about the theories of what happened to those 10 people that vanished without a trace. And and I want to talk about vanishing. For me, and this is a problem I have, how do things just completely vanish? But you have to remember... Oh, dear. They really do. I mean, the Earth, first of all, when it comes to ocean vanishings, seven-tenths of it is water. Seven-tenths. Yes, this is... Seventy percent. This is a water planet, essentially. It is a water, exactly. little islands of land, comparatively to the whole planet... Mostly water. Yeah, I mean, look at MH370. That's 227 people, no trace. Actually, that's not true. There well, is a trace. Well, yes, There's now, some debris. Traces are now popping up here but and more information. It's not hard to believe that 10 people in a wooden yawl could be lost with no trace. Although, right. technically, they're not that far from land. They were halfway between yes. Santa Maria uh, and the Azores thinking, and, the, and Portugal. Right. Under good navigation and control, in theory— they could have made landfall with all their experience. The bigger point is you just never know, which is kind of a cop-out. But yeah. speaking of MH370, I was reading some very recent news reports on it, and they're saying, well, the debris should eventually wash up somewhere. And so, of course, the, the theory now is that it was deliberately possibly flown at a low altitude into the ocean. Therefore, you don't get a huge explosion and a ripping apart of airplane parts and pieces that it was relatively intact. So the fuselage is relatively intact. And so only a few pieces are going to wash up, which we've seen. Hmm. 
You're the one who sent me that article. I oh, yes, I did. Yeah, okay. That's right. No, I'm not saying that we have to – because I, I <laughs> no, have I, the stuff I, I send kinda, him I don't read. No, I kind of want to do yeah. an episode on MH370. Possibly. That's a touchy one. But yeah. uh, it's kind of interesting that eventually something washes up somewhere. Stuff from Japan after the tsunami makes it to America. Yeah. You know, the world's oceans are constantly and You know how they flux. figure out where things have come from? Because when they wash up yeah. with all the barnacles and the sea life on That's them, right. they determine the regions that the life came from. Very clever. So it's interesting, though, that, yeah, a lifeboat full of people, they didn't just wash up on a beach somewhere. You know? Well, and, and I can't remember who said this, if it was Flood or DeVoe, but they were, had said that there was a place for a boat, but they couldn't be sure that one had been there. Oh. What, so, well, I mean, the railing was lowered and it was right. gone, but, you know, there were davits on the back for lowering yeah. a lifeboat, but they weren't used. They were blocked off for some reason. Yeah. So, I think that they weren't certain that one had been there. Okay, because that's But I think in, it probably was. But. Well, I think it's a pretty accountable thing. You make a note of it if, it if there isn't one. Yeah. And I would guess that Captain Briggs, with his wife and daughter on, would want to take every safety precaution. That's a super valid point. On the other hand, my counterpoint to the, well, they should have gone somewhere, right? No, I think that this world is so vast. There was an interesting thing about the, uh, the Ark had dug up about tying this in with plane disappearances as well. Yes. Maybe it was Cogs, as we're calling them. As yeah. Them. <laughs> yeah. So Chris Cogswell had, had made a chart or found one that showed all the plane disappearances from 1940s on. And then he was also figuring out all the missing ships in the last 200 years. Yeah. So gathering that, it all kind of spreads out. This earth is vast. There was a spike around World War II, of course, many more planes, a lot more activity, especially military. We just now find one. There was, a, I think, in the last five years, there was a military transport plane that had been found in the mountains, I think, in California. So, again, things seemingly have vanished, but uh, they're somewhere. Yeah. Unless you want to get real off the Meta, charts, off yeah. the chain, and then we're talking about interdimensional portals. Yeah. Okay, but it's not that unusual that a small boat with uh, the survivors on it yeah. would just never be found again. They got swallowed up by the ocean and possibly, well, you know, bad weather. The other thing, the other first rule, even when you're just at the beach, is you don't want to be separated from your craft. And that's something that might come up as well. It's the reason that even simple things such as surfboards have leashes, boogie boards have leashes, jet skis turn off when you fall off of them yeah. now, thank yeah. God. Right. They didn't always, but yeah. when you're out in the water, whether you're on a personal watercraft or a surfboard or a windsurfer or a paddleboard or whatever, yeah. when you get separated from it, you are immediately in deep dookie. Like, well, you know, <laughs> anything is better than nothing. You alone yeah. is, is worth zip. So, yeah. again, remember the ocean is very cold, water, you're not going to last very long. Yeah. Um, I mean, depending on the region you're in. And the other, now sailors, especially when they're sailing alone, they use these things called jack lines and they'll run a strap along the deck that has to be above the other lines on uh, the deck right, so it right. doesn't get fouled, and then latch a carabiner onto that yeah. so that if they fall overboard, they're still attached to the vessel because that is the difference between life and death. This is another one of those situations, and we, we talked about it in part one. You don't get a mistake. You don't get a yeah. mistake in an airplane or a helicopter and most times on a motorcycle. And when you're at sea, especially if you're alone, you yeah. don't get a mistake. You get... Zero mistakes. You're right. just dead and, well, if then, you make one. Or you have to miss. It's a miraculous finding of you later, and you're, you've been eating a jellyfish yeah. you know, for a month. Fishermen have been lost at sea. In, oh, yeah, in that a guy boat. in Mexico was yeah, gone for what? How, I can't remember how many months. Uh, it was months. Yeah. It was months. Yeah. And then that's what he was doing. So it's possible. It's not very likely. It's a cruel place. You're not meant to be out there. Again, the point is that any piece of 
flotation device. Well, unless you're Jack from Titanic, then that uh, you couldn't get on the door. So yeah, it didn't really help you. Yeah. But the, anything is better than nothing. So you want to remain with your vehicle. I have a problem with uh, movies that uh, where they like, we're going to head off into the woods that way. No, no, you're in a crashed fuselage. Stay there. It's a bit of shelter. Any kind of things that shelters you from the elements is better than nothing. That's true. So yeah, I see your point. Okay, so one of the first theories I want to talk about is the theory that was developed by retired sea captain David Williams, who has got 50 years at sea. It's a very experienced experienced. Yeah, and he currently is living down in the Philippines. I actually spoke with him briefly via email. And one of the things that he came up with was the possibility of a sea quake that the Mary Celeste had been hit by a sea quake. And the thing to remember with a sea quake is that it's much like an earthquake. A lot of people probably haven't experienced them. You and I have. Um, Yes, (laughs) but not on the ocean. Not on the ocean. And this is the thing to remember about water. It's not forgiving. So just because the quake is underneath the bottom of the ocean doesn't mean that you're not going to experience significant damage sitting on the water on top of it because the water is – only a half step shy of a solid. Right, but so, it, it, and things build up. It's like a, a giant tsunami can only start as a few feet high. Yes. And when it builds up, now it's 50, 100 feet high in a very extreme cases, but yeah. Yes. So, and, and that's a, a phenomenon that can happen uh, we talked about rogue waves. Yes. Waves, it's just Which energy, are now have you know, been documented. Yeah, o- yes. energy overlapping in such a way that's, again, very, very rare, but it can happen. It can happen, and it causes capsizing as well. Now- The Mary Celeste, however, did not capsize. Captain Williams pointed out that there was a bark called the Alhama of Arendal sailing from Norway, and the crew abandoned ship after a violent sea quake on December 20th, 1885, 13 years after the Mary Celeste. And he actually has an article here. It's called Horrors of the Deep, A Crewless Bark Discovered and Terrific Shocks of Sea Quake Experienced. St. John's. January 8th, the British bark Isabel reports passing a large Norwegian bark on the 20th. The name of the bark is the Alama of Arendelle. No vestige of the crew was found. Two days previous, the Isabel experienced terrific earthquake shocks lasting 15 minutes. The thunderous submarine roaring was appalling. The ship was shaken in every fiber. The crew, paralyzed with fear, broke through all discipline and cut the boats loose. A cessation of the shocks restored tranquility on board. So they actually experienced this, yeah. and they were talking about another vessel they found that was completely abandoned. Right. right. There was another ship that's kind of famous, the Joyita. This yes. was a 70-ton ghost ship. It was found in October 1955. This is from Captain Williams' website directly, which is deafwhale.com. You should check it out. Deafwhale, D-E-A-F-W-H-A-L-E.com. She was found in October 1955, abandoned not far from Fiji Island. The marine surveyors blamed it on a sea quake. And here's an article about the Joyita. Marine inspectors today completed a preliminary survey of the 70-ton ghost ship Joyita and reported the disappearance of her 25 passengers and crew could be explained in only one way, a sea quake. The Joyita, now at Suva, Fiji Islands, was found drifting and deserted in the South Pacific three weeks ago. She had sailed from Samoa on a two-day voyage to the Tokelau Islands on October 3rd. A big air-sea search uncovered no trace of the missing passengers and crew. The Fiji government ruled out piracy. Investigators said today the only imaginable cause of the disaster was an undersea eruption that threw everyone overboard. The Tonga government is being asked to help check the seaquake theory. Let's take a breather here for a quick message about one of our sponsors. 
Well, it's time to talk about one of my favorite sponsors again, Blue Apron. At this point, I've made more than 25 Blue Apron meals, and I got to tell you, Forrest, I'm hooked for life. For us, for my whole family, it's changed so much more than just our grocery store habits. We were always going out to eat, and you got to think about what that adds up to, not only in terms of money, but the drive time and everything else. I do the finances in our house, and I figured out that we've been saving a fortune with Blue Apron. At less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron is sending these amazing meals to our home with seasonal recipes and pre-portioned ingredients. All we have to do is cook it. And I love that, too, because how fresh is a home-cooked meal from raw ingredients? I mean, you can't get any fresher than that. In fact, to make a Spinal Tap reference, and if you haven't seen that movie, please see it immediately, (laughs) a Blue Apron meal can be none more fresh, fresher. (laughs) Not only... Was that a bad joke coming from you? It's bad grammar. But you know what? I couldn't agree more. Blue Apron is awesome. They know that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals. So they set the highest quality standards for their community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, fisheries, and ranchers. Whether it's Japanese ramen noodles, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, or heirloom tomatoes, Blue Apron is bringing you the best. They have new recipes weekly, and you can also customize them each week based on your preferences. Choose delivery options to fit your needs. There's no weekly commitment, so you only get deliveries when you want them. Check out this week's menu and get three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash astonishing. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. Blueapron.com slash astonishing. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Okay, let's get back to the Mary Celeste Part 3. All right, so the interesting thing about this is the captain and crew of the Joyita, and you can read there's a, a, yeah. a Wikipedia page on it. They knew that she was not really a sinkable vessel. There are some vessels – people joke about the Titanic, she's unsinkable. Uh, right. But there are ships that are built that it's almost impossible to imagine them sinking because of the way they're constructed. Well, yeah, on a very small scale. Uh, is, you might know about this. Is it the Boston Whaler? That, the uh, Boston Whaler. Yes, I do know about this. The core this of it is foam, my, styrofoam. Yes, right? and, it's in, and it's sealed in between the deck and the hull. Yeah. Totally. So it can't – the styrofoam can't come out. Right. Unless you break it completely in half, <laughs> yeah. which is unlikely. Yeah. My, my aunt has one. It's a great little yeah. vessel. I've been out on it many times. And she's like, yeah, no, these don't sink. You stay with it. Even if it yeah. does break in half, the styrofoam comes out, it's not going to sink. Better to be floating on something than nothing. Exactly. Yeah. Captain Williams thinks that the Mary Celeste may have suffered that fate of a violent sea quake that forced everyone to abandon ship, or at least they thought they needed to abandon ship. Well, the sea quake, in my estimation here, is, as a theory, can branch off into several different areas, which we haven't gotten to yet. But yeah. let's take the quaking, the shaking and the quaking in itself alone. It'd be very disturbing on board ships. So it's like the concussive force underwater. It's like you see the old submarine movies, right? And they're dropping depth charges. A lot of that damage comes from the concussive force of the water emanating from the explosion. Right. So it's not like the submarine's getting hit with shrapnel. No. It's the, you know, underwater, again, it's like uh, when your ears pop, it, you're in a, in a grave amount of danger if there is a strong concussive force. So imagine being on top of the water here, you have a major, you're, you know, you're over a fault line or a, a tectonic plate connection point there where uh, you get a quake and that energy is transferred above ship. So everything is now shaking it could then lead to them thinking about the cargo. In Captain William's point, maybe it shook people totally off the decks. Yeah. That's another theory where now they're just, uh, they're all on deck anyway, and they just get shaken off. It can sprout several theories. I think. Well, yeah. He had speculated that 
the shaking had caused some of the barrels of alcohol to open up or some of the alcohol had leaked out and the fumes caused them to abandon ship out right. of fear of an explosion because they could, the they could stove was now. lit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so yeah. Th- there's a lot of things there. My only real issue with it and would be what we pointed out very clearly that the sewing machine – the vial of the sewing machine oil, yeah. the things on it, they weren't disturbed. The panes of glass were not disturbed. So in general, when it comes to the ship being massively upset by a sea quake or any of the other theories that we might touch on, it's hard to reconcile that with the delicate items that were not knocked over. Yeah. Now, there's been speculation, though, that some of the items may have been set aright after the discovery of the ship. I don't know. I have not clear. come across okay. that. But why would they do that? Well, I don't know. You're just, you know, I mean, Captain you're tam- De- not you're tampering with evidence. Yeah, but First Mate DeVoe made a very cataloged, very, very well-documented list of everything he discovered just as he discovered it. Yeah, when he was he the aboard. right man to send aboard. Yeah, and it's exactly what they needed at the hearings. He noted everything, and I just can't see him being that diligent about writing down how he found things on board and right. then also changing things that he found on board. Okay, so another thing that he had commented on were that the interiors were wet. So yes. you know, due to open hatches, skylights. Well, the uh, hatches had been blown off. Right. But not the main hatch where the alcohol was, and that's right. important. Right. But all the other hatches had. Yeah. There was three and a half feet of water in the main hold yeah. down at the bottom, and there was a foot of water even on the other decks. So water had definitely spilled in. She had been in some rough seas probably See, that's after the, she was abandoned. Right. Were the rough seas, the roughing up of the ship, which caused the disarray, did it happen while they were on board or after? So that's another big question because it, it figures into why they had to leave. You should read Captain Williams' theory. It's very interesting. Go to deafwhale.com. You can look it up. He also has a theory there on the USS Scorpion, which is another famous missing submarine. Ah. And his stories, they tie in together. So you should go there and take a look at that. And one of the next theories that I want to talk about is the idea of a water spout. Yeah, a little water tornado. Right? Yes, and I've seen several of these. You actually see them fairly often in North Carolina. Even just down at the beach recreationally, I've seen them. Not big ones, but you, you do yeah. see them. They can be small and not violent. And when I first read about the water spout theory, I thought it was unlikely because I know the ones that I had seen, they might sink a kayak or, <laughs> yeah. you know. But yeah. it, it turns out people have died. Ships have sunk. Ah, water yeah. spouts have sunk ships, and it's been documented. In fact, on September 23rd, 1551... Or it might have been 1556. I guess there's a, there's a conflicting. The newspaper may have been off. Yeah, the date. I'm not <laughs> sure. Yeah. But there a was long a time ago. Yeah. There was a famous tornado called the Valletta tornado. But the thing is, it was actually originally a water spout. It started as a really strong water spout, and it killed over 600 people in Malta. Oh, and I can believe that. Yeah, when you're out in the open. So you're saying this started off uh, offshore. It started off offshore. Moved onto land. Water spouts are tornadic and non-tornadic. Right. And the ones, all the little ones I've seen and was just previously making fun of a few minutes ago were probably most definitely non-tornadic. Meaning what, though? It doesn't have the kind of power of a tornado. You're talking about power, but they all do a twisting action. They all do a twisting action. And I have read in in some forums while we were researching the show, I read it, some men that had been at sea, the Navy officers, that sort of thing, had talked about witnessing water spouts that dumped not only tons of water, but also fish would come flying down and hit the decks. And (laughs) and it would cause a lot of damage. And in some cases, it can take stuff on the deck and throw it around or impale it into the pilot house or whatever. So, But this one in Malta, not only did it kill 600 people, it also capsized four galleys. It was a big, big deal. So they are 
a significant threat. And one of the things that Chris had pointed out in our research in the in the ARC, in the research core, was that when the water spout comes close, if they were had the sounding rod in, they could have thought that they were taking on up to six feet of water in less than a minute if the pressure was dropping and sucking the water up the right. sounding shaft. There. Yeah, it's well, what I call using extreme terminology. <laughs> physics. Well, <laughs> yeah, it's not official, and neither is, is my explanation here. But strange things happen. We were talking about this just earlier today, though. Force equals mass times acceleration. So when you have an increase in one of those uh, elements of the equation, specifically what I was talking about is that this was an old karateka trick where the uh, the sensei would take a paper straw, because they used to have paper straws back in the way back in the day, so they're kind of weak and flimsy. But if you were fast enough, you could jam it into a potato. Right. Now think about it, that's pretty hard to do. It would be pretty hard to do with a plastic straw these days. Yes. And then we were talking about, you know, in tornadoes, you, a lot of people come out and see pieces of straw, hay, embedded into trees. I have seen that personally after hurricanes down at the coast of North Carolina. I have seen, I remember seeing hay, like yeah. a, a single piece of hay impaled in a telephone pole. Oh, yeah. That happens yeah. all the time. People see uh, pieces of straw and hay and twigs embedded into fence posts. So you have a piece of hay or a piece of straw, which has very little mass, but it is moving so incredibly fast that it, it has tremendous force. Yes. Partly has to do with the bilge pumps, right? Because the low pressure is sucking water back up. Right. And it's giving them a false sense of how much water is in the bilge right. because the water is wanting to come up because the pressure is so low. Yeah. And excuse the expression, but it is a perfect storm, we think, of conditions that happen. So they think that they may have heard some low rumbling, some rattling going on. Water's coming on. Oh, my God, this thing is sinking fast. We got it. We have to move now. Yes. And the other thing is the low pressure when it came up could have actually sucked the hatches right off the deck. Yeah, you'll hear about that from people who have gone through a hurricane or a tornado that the windows bow outwards because of the pressure. Yeah. Uh, because of the low pressure outside. Yes. And there's greater pressure indoors. Exactly. So all kinds of strange things happen. That's true. And I've actually personally witnessed some of this stuff because of this friend of mine who lives in North Carolina. His name's Steve Jones. Pretty plain name, but he is a real person. <laughs> yeah. He actually used to be a technical diver. He himself has personally, he lives in North Carolina, yeah. has dove personally on the wreck of the Queen Anne's Revenge. Oh, you've me- yes, you've mentioned this. Yeah, yeah which is uh, Blackbeard's ship, Edward uh-huh. Teach, uh, who was notable North Carolina pirate. President. But his job was crazy. At, at one point, they were trying to excavate a cannon, and it, because of where the wreckage was, it's in the surf. So he would be just below the surf uh, uh-huh. with waves breaking. Incredibly hard, dangerous work. Yeah. Trying to get this cannon out and 12 feet above him, there's like crashing waves on. Yeah. In, in, insanity. But anyway, when I was in college, Steve was also living in Raleigh in North Carolina. I've mentioned this before in earlier episodes. There mm-hmm. was a night there. We had 21 tornadoes touch down in one night. Oh, I mean, uh, on land or? or on land yeah. in Raleigh in right. North Carolina. There was some serious, serious damage. It was pretty amazing. But one of the tornadoes actually literally sort of bounced off of his house. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had to go pick him up because he didn't have anywhere to stay after oh, this. Yeah. Yeah. And the house was a sort of a classic late 60s split-level ranch mm-hmm. with brick on the outside. When I got there to the house to come see him and pick him up, the bricks on one corner had all been sucked off the house. You're right. They yeah. were gone. And one of the most amazing things was, and this is what I'm talking about with the low pressure, and they talk about this with tornadoes. Anyone who's lived through them knows this, especially Mm -hmm. you guys in middle America. They've been devastating the past several years. I'm sure we have listeners in that area. But when I got to his house, his bedroom, which was on the second floor, the bedroom window, he had a curtain rod 
One curtain was hanging inside his bedroom, as it should have been. The other curtain, the rod went up and over the top of the wall, and it was on the outside of the wall, and that curtain was hanging on the outside. But the roof was still there. You mean the outside of the house? The outside of the house. So what had happened was the low pressure had picked the roof up, and when it did, it sucked that curtain rod outside the house and bent it down, and then the roof came back down on it. The whole house. In addition to this, his bedroom, which was basically a square, like a flagpole. It was a square, and then it had a little entryway where the door was. Just inside here was a light switch. Yeah. The door, when it would swing open, would be nowhere near the light switch, technically. But because the house's walls were so bowed by the tornado and the low pressure sucking the house inward, almost to where it wanted to implode. Right. The wall had bowed in enough to move that light switch several inches so that when the door flew open, it broke the light switch. Oh. <laughs> wow. But when you were standing there after the fact, yeah. you would open the door and it would be easily a foot from where the light switch was. Yeah. So this is what happens with this low pressure. And the reason I'm retelling this is because it's an amazing scene of devastation. If a water spout had, in fact, hit the Mary Celeste, it's easy to imagine them being below deck or whatever. And maybe they saw it coming. They knew there yeah. was bad weather. All the hatches blow off. Right. They're having problems with uh, fumes or alcohol itself escaping from the barrels yeah. because of the low pressure is drawing it out. Rattling they've, barrels. Yeah, yeah, they've got fumes. They're thinking we may potentially have an explosion if there's even any open flames anywhere on the ship. Yeah. They might panic and abandon ship. You have a choice between terrible options. So yes. You, you start with the worst uh, terrible option. And then you, you progress from there. So it's like, it's not great being getting everybody into a lifeboat, but if the main ship's going to explode and catch on fire, right. it's still... <laughs> and the water yeah. spout has passed, right? but we still have an issue that we're dealing with back here now. And this goes back to the sounding rod that was left on the deck. Yeah. If the water spout was in the area or even nearby, and you're experiencing the low pressure that we were just talking about, the sounding rod would have reflected a much worse situation for the water in the bilges. It would have exaggerated the depth. Right. So they might have thought that she had way more water on board and that, in fact, she was sinking because she had gone from what they were used to, which was maybe a foot or two feet, to like it looked like six feet. Yeah, I think that ties into uh, First Mate DeVoe's uh, estimation of of it, that the low pressure, he was thinking that there was a a misestimation, I guess, uh, of the amount of water below because the water having been sucked up into the bilge would give a false reading. Yes. So it seems like, whoa, we're taking on water way too fast. At this rate, it's going to It's going to sink. Yeah. We got to get out of here. Right. And they drop the sounding rod on the deck. They make preparations to get off because, as we pointed out numerous times, they left quickly but orderly. They left, of course, things that weren't important at the time, but they gathered important documents. Most of their p- personal possessions, I think, they left behind. But it seemed like it, as fast as they could without uh, panicking. So, right. Yeah. It does seem like uh, most of these theories are pointing that they didn't get pulled off the ship themselves by an unknown compelling force like squid. But we're going to get to the squid thing. We are going to get to the squid (laughs) Right. But before we get to the squid, let's talk about poison. Uh Uh-huh. That's another theory. Yeah, that they were poisoned. Now, we already mentioned this earlier. Conspiracy? The the crew of the De Gratia ate their food and did not get sick. Right. And there was six months' worth of food and water on board when they came across her. Yeah. 
So some people have mentioned the possibility of ergot poisoning. Oh, e- yes. E-R-G-O-T. It's <laughs> horrific. Yeah. Ties in with one of your favorite uh, stories of the Dancing Plague of 1518. Oh, yes. What's well, that's, one, that's just one of the um, – there, there was a dance mania where people – a lot of them just danced themselves into exhaustion and death. Wow. And one of the theories is that it was ergot poisoning. Okay. Which comes from a, a form of – it's like a fungus on a wheat. Yes. I, I'd not, I, if you'd Same thing that killed the tribbles. Ago, <laughs> Sorry. Right. Yeah, then, yeah, got into oh, the yeah, quadratrita yeah. Kaylee. Okay. Yeah, right. Sorry. Well, um, I'm nerding <laughs> out right there. Just a little bit, though. Let's talk a little bit more about the dancing thing because I, I know. I, it's I, really I, interesting. I, well, like I said, it's one of your favorite topics. Yeah. I mean, these guys, these people were like came out into the streets. It started with one woman, I guess, who came out and she started dancing in the street and then she just kept dancing for hours and hours and eventually it built up to 400 people. Yeah, against her will, though, it wasn't like she was out there having a good time. These yeah. people expressed fear and uh, trepidation. They seemed confused about what was happening to their bodies. Well, <laughs> I would be, too. Yeah. Because you can't stop, so they were compelled. Of course, they didn't have the science we do now. Right. Uh, they could only re- observe the symptoms, which was feverish dancing to the point of exhaustion where you would collapse, and then if you could recover a little, you'd get back up and start dancing again. Yeah, so, and people died. You can die of exhaustion, yeah. just fatigue, and they weren't eating, I don't believe, properly, and not sleeping. So, yeah, you can just drive yourself to uh, to death. So what do we think about this? Do we think the only thing about the idea of ergot poisoning being at fault for yeah. the Mary Celeste, I mean, first of all, you would think things would have been a mess on the ship. If people were going bat crazy and uh, thinking that they were animals and uh, dancing and clawing at things. Yeah, because LSD is synthesized from the same. Yeah, well, ergot does not contain directly lysergic acid diethylamide, LSD, right? uh, but it's a precursor. It's in the chain of being synthesized to get uh, a powerful hallucinogenic. So yeah, you can understand that people would have psychotic episodes and be very fearful. That's another bad side effect of LSD I've heard, yeah. <laughs> having the, the fear, as they say, and freaking out. But yeah, it's a fungi that occurs on rye mostly, but it can also be on wheat and barley and very rarely oats. But here's one argument kind of against that, is that the first mate and the two other crew members boarded the ship, ate some of the supplies, because, you know, wheat and grains keep well, so you, I'm sure they're having their oatmeal or whatever. Yeah. Didn't affect them. No. As they sailed her back for salvage all the way back to Gibraltar, they were eating that food and they did not get sick. They did not have any kind of poisoning or any issues with the food that was left behind. There were six months of food still yeah. on the Mary Celeste when they found her. In good condition. And I think you can kind of tell now if the grain's affected. It, it does get a brownish rust color. At least I know the, uh, the heads of gra- uh, the grain stalks become discolored and shriveled a little. And so who knows what they had on there. But basically, I'm going to guess that they had stores of wheat for bread making and and flour and such. That kind of rules it out for me, eating the food. I agree. Okay, let's stop there for a minute and quickly share a message about one of our sponsors. I got to tell you, man, sometimes there just aren't enough hours in the day. It's like with our show, 9 to 5 just doesn't cut it. If you're like us and working long hours, you can't afford to make time-consuming trips to the post office. You need a better way. Use Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can get the postage you need the instant you need it. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package right from your own computer and printer. It's quick and easy. You'll save money with Stamps.com, too. 
It's just a fraction of the cost of one of those expensive postage meters, plus you'll get special postage discounts you can't even find at the post office. In fact, we recommend it because it's been great for us. The minute I started using it to ship our merchandise from our store, our shipping costs went way down. And with their USB digital scale, their software knows exactly how much your package weighs without you even having to type it in. Another time saver, especially when you're shipping a lot of stuff at once. It's really the perfect service for your small business. I wish I'd found them back when we started out. You know, it has made things a lot easier for us, and we're saving money too, so that's great. Right now, sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code LEGENDS for this special offer. A four-week trial, plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. Get started with Stamps.com today. Within minutes, you'll be printing postage right from your desk. Go to Stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in LEGENDS. That's Stamps.com. Enter LEGENDS. Within minutes, you'll be printing postage right from your desk. All right, let's get back to the show. This also ties into MKUltra and, and Polybius, experimental releases of some form of air gut synthesized right. to make people go nuts in a whole town in France. Yeah. Also, I just want to say, with regard to the earlier theories we've mentioned and with Captain Williams' theory about the sea quake, again, things were upright. The ship had not suffered any significant damage yeah, to the some, hull. Some battering, yeah. Definitely. But it was normal yeah. kind yeah, of wear and tear. Right. It's hard to reconcile some of those theories. Some of the other simpler theories that have been put forth in the past are the theory of pirates. Sure. Which has been ruled out because nothing was taken. There were Riffian pirates operating off the coast of Morocco in the 1870s. Yes. But again, pirates generally take things of value, especially small things they can carry. None of the uh, stuff, of the personal effects of the crew or the captain were really That's messed right. with. There so. was even a bag with some money in it in one of the sea chests. I yeah, believe. I don't think yeah. they would have they, they would have looked over that. Yeah. yeah. I personally, not thinking pirates, and most people aren't as well. There's the whole idea of the crew emergency, too. Someone falls overboard, yeah. and then re- recovering that person is so poorly managed to that it results in everyone being overboard. Well, the Australian... Um, the Kaz, too, it had it set sail, and then five days from the, off the northeastern yeah. coast of Australia, five days later, it turns up completely abandoned. And it's been compared to the Mary Celeste. Yeah. There's a lot of common ground there. I mean, it wasn't a merchant vessel. It was a pleasure vessel, but... The three guys that were on it, one of them had been at sea for 25 years. Yeah. However, they were not good swimmers. Oh, I didn't... Yeah, Yeah, and uh, their life jackets were all still on board, which means they probably weren't wearing them. The fenders were out, which is really interesting. Whenever I was used to do some day sailing, you Mm -hmm. would joke about the amateurs would, you know, head out to sea with the fenders out. Still going. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, because... Splashing around Yeah, it's a sign you're not really up to par there. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Ship shape. So that's a weird thing. That's a little bit of a weird thing. They're, if they're at sea, why are the fenders out? What I've noticed uh, reading a little bit about both cases, of course, yeah. is that what's so strange to the people that find it and the investigators later is that it seems so mostly normal. Yeah. That's the odd thing. If the people were missing, but it looked like, oh, my God, there's blood splattered everywhere. Yeah. Uh, things are tossed over. Things are looted. Well, pirates, you right. know. Or a scuffle. Somebody, somebody didn't get their Johnny Cake just right. A fight breaks out. Three guys go overboard. You would expect some, some kind of uh, disarray. Yeah. And there's a little bit, but not a lot. Not much. Well, there, yeah. there was a laptop on. 
in the right. cabin. It was still on. Was working fine. Yeah, the motor. The, the motor's still running on the boat. The motor yeah. was running. Yeah. Yes, and it, it was a sailboat. It was a catamaran, but but the motor was running. And in both cases, maybe it's a clue. Maybe it's nothing. Yeah, a rope was tailing behind both the Mary Celeste, and the Cast 2. Yeah, and I can't figure that out. In the case of the Mary Celeste, I felt like the yawl was probably tied up to her, but that's part of my theory there. But I think in the case of the Cast 2 or a small pleasure vessel, I could see dragging a rope for safety, especially if you were solo maybe, in case you sure, fell overboard. Sure. something to, gra- yeah, something to grab onto. But as we've said, when you get separated from your craft, and these three guys were not good swimmers, all it has to do is just be going a little bit faster than you, and <laughs> oh, you're dead. Yeah, can you imagine that feeling? You're Ugh. in the water, and the, the watching boat's it going sail on. away. Yeah, and, your last uh, chance. Yeah, and you probably got several hours of just treading water. Yeah, and uh, before you expire, unless you get rescued. But what was yeah, and the radio, by the way, was fully working. Everything was in working condition. Oh yeah, well the sails I, were a little shredded, but that was it. That was the yeah, only that's problem. an odd thing. The one mainsail, I think, was pretty shredded. Yeah. So, but that could be weather, right? It could just be from it, when it, when it sailed on unmanned. If it got in the wind the right way, and it was the boom was swinging back and forth. Yeah. And, okay. You know, it would have just torn the sail up. So for sure. So no Dyatlov shredding. No. They're trying to get. No. I need to get through the sail to the <laughs> other side of the boat as quickly as possible. But they have different theories. Some people think, well, one of them there was there was some fishing line I think tangled up in the rudder or something. Uh. So they think, oh, well, maybe one of them was trying to fix that and he fell overboard, and then the other person fell overboard trying to rescue him, and then the remaining person. There's a theory that suggests that the boom swung and hit him, because. When you have a man overboard situation, what you're supposed to do is sail in a figure eight. And if you can't sail, you motor. If you have a motor, it's a lot easier. You drop your sails and you motor in a figure eight until you are able to pick up the people who have gone overboard. Yeah. Which does sort of explain maybe why the engine was running. Here's the thing about doing the figure eight. You're cutting across the wind over and over and over again because you kind of do a smaller figure eight so you can get back to rescue the people. When you're doing that, the boom is swinging all over the place. So it's possible if the sail's not down. Maybe they were trying to do a figure eight and the whoever the remaining got person knocked on over board got knocked off. In classic comical boating fa- yeah, fashion. Yeah, it was probably yeah. funny for about one millionth well, of a second. That's always the joke in the in the comedy. The experienced guy ducks and then the, uh, the other guy gets hit in the gut. And, yeah. You know. The difference, though, that's interesting with this case is that being a modern-day 2007 incident. Yeah. One of the guys was videotaping earlier yes. in the day. So yes. that's, they got some important clues from this videotape, which in one case, it pans around 360 degrees. They're able to see some islands and land, yeah. which led the uh, investigators to triangulate where they were. Mm-hmm. And who was on board? The guy, uh, one of the guys was on the, on the back step fishing, maybe accounts for the fishing line. That's where they saw the rope being trailed. Yeah. The motor was not running. Yeah. They weren't wearing their life vests. Right. Nothing in in too much of a disarray, just another pleasant day, but very quickly, referencing Dyatlov, things can go badly very quickly. There's a whole different set of rules. When you're solo, you have to be so much more careful. And it's it's like you said, you have to have, to have those jack lines on. Yeah. Because if you fall over, there's nobody to pull you back in. With Captain Briggs, who was extremely experienced, a master mariner, Women not being allowed on deck while it was underway, which I don't know if he held to that, but it's it's unlikely that yeah. Sarah was above deck very much. Well, I'm going to guess that she was watching the two-year-old. Exactly. And you don't want a toddler on deck no. in a very dangerous place. So 
I'm sure that I'm sure she brought her up for fresh air and to, to look around a bit, but yeah. I'm sure that mostly she's watching the kid. Yeah, down in the cabin and, yeah. and knitting her dress, her new yeah, dress, right, which exactly. she left behind on the sewing machine. I just don't think somebody fell overboard. I don't think there was ergot poisoning. There was no sign of any sort of panic, really. Aside no. from the dropped sounding rod, there wasn't a sign that people got off in a panic disorderly way or that anyone was suffering from some crazy illness. Now, Well, no, because the other thing is that even if it was ergot poisoning, I would still suspect that there would be dead people on board. Plus, it doesn't take you out right very quickly. No. There's a long-suffering period, and you not everybody dies from it. You can recover from right. it. Right, and on top of that, you certainly would have made a note of what was going on in the log. Yes. Of right. which there was no notes of any kind right. of that type. Same thing with the sea quake, although in theory the sea quake might have happened. They abandoned ship, and they're keeping a new log in the yawl, which is lost. Yes, Possibly, but it's it's hard to say. So the final couple of sort of crazy theories before we get on to what I think personally might have really happened is that a UFO came down <laughs> yeah. next to the ship and opened a little door and took everybody and they vanished into another dimension. Well, or it was a USO and it went back <laughs> below the ocean to Atlantis. Yeah. And they're all living happily down there. Well, you know what's going to happen is that they'll return once the mothership lands at Devil's Tower. Yes. A la Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah. Whereas the Flight 19 guys show up. Yes. And, and the uh, crew of the Cotopaxi. Yeah, and the yeah. little boy Barry. He, he yes. He comes running to his mom. So oh, Barry. But you think like, well, that's kind of cruel though for the aliens to do that. I mean, they're taking people away from their loved ones for uh, 50 years, you know, yeah. however long. So. Yeah. So that is one theory though. They all got swept up in, in disorder array for some reason. There's a few people in the ark who are devoted to the giant squid theory. Well, at least one I know who, uh, <laughs> it's one of the more fun ones. Not that, you know, people disappearing, of course, is fun. But yeah. but if you're thinking of a giant squid attack, it's dramatic, I'll say that, and maybe slightly more likely than a UFO. Right. If you don't believe in UFOs. And now a message from our last two sponsors of the evening. Man, we've scored some great sponsors lately. I am so excited about Indochino. What a cool product and service. Made-to-measure suits for the masses. It's such a great idea. I've never had a job where I needed a suit, and the suits I've had have been off-the-rack ones, pretty much. I've noticed. Well, you can tell, really. When you look at somebody, you look at a guy, and the suit's not fitting right, it bunches up in all the wrong places, especially around the shoulders. God, and Indochino has changed all that. They're reinventing men's fashion. We both got to go to one of their locations here in L.A. where we were treated like kings as they took 14 unique measurements that they then used to make a custom suit that fits perfectly and at a really affordable price. It was pretty cool. And if you aren't near one of their showrooms, you can measure yourself or go to a local tailor and get the measurements there. And then you can send those to Indochino. There's so much customization available, too. It actually reminded me of building up my cars in Gran Turismo on the PlayStation. <laughs> it is a little like that, actually. You can pick your own lining, your lapels, personal monogram, and more. And when you look good, you feel good. Plus, they have a money-back guarantee. Today, our listeners get any premium suit for just $399. That's up to 50% off at Indochino.com when entering Legends at checkout. Plus, shipping is free. There's no reason not to try your first custom-made suit with a deal this good. And a suit classic from their premium collection will look good, feel good, and last. That's Indochino.com, promo code LEGENDS, for any premium suit for just $399 and free shipping. Indochino, your look, your way. Producing our show can be brutal. 
There's so much new to learn for every episode or series, and if we didn't love learning, we wouldn't be able to do that. That's so true. We'd never be able to do Astonishing Legends if that wasn't the case. And learning new things is what we're all about. That's why we keep telling you guys about the Great Courses Plus, which we love. You can learn about anything that interests you anytime you want. The Great Courses Plus gives you unlimited on-demand access to stream video lectures on thousands of topics presented by award-winning professors. You can learn about World War II, medieval Europe, or the Vikings, or explore new interests like how to draw. And you can stream these short video lectures on your schedule, wherever you are, from any device. It's very cool. We want you to sign up, too, so you can start watching courses like the one we just watched, The Skeptic's Guide to American History. I was actually just watching the last lecture in that series, and Professor Mark A. Stoller goes deep towards the end in his analysis of history and how it's perceived by humanity. He gets into a whole thing about multidimensional perception of time as it relates to historical events, and he also makes a fascinating observation about how history does not, in fact, ever repeat itself. Only human behavioral patterns do. you got to check that series out. Well, right now, as one of our podcast listeners, you'll immediately get a free month of unlimited access to all of the Great Courses Plus lectures when you sign up. Don't wait. Start your free month today. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. Remember, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash legends. We now return to our show, which will continue uninterrupted. Now you tell me your thoughts on the, on the giant squid. So one of the members of the ARC, uh, for those of you who haven't, are just now joining the show and haven't heard before, that's the Astonishing Research Corps, which is a group of rogues, <laughs> rogues scoundrels, and infidels yeah. Yeah. who research for us. Uh, they're like uh, lions in a pit when we throw them a new topic. But one of our members in there, Marie Mayhew, who is on Team Giant Squid. Uh, well, yes. <laughs> she wrote a very interesting <laughs> post here in our uh, the app that we use for research, which is called River. I want to mention this here. It's very funny. Here's my final plug for the Giant Squid, although I do think water spout and or a possible explosion is more likely. We'll talk about that in a minute. Short of sea zombies, I love me the squid. During the last three months of 1872, there were sightings of giant squid off the Azores, and this beast would be very prevalent in popular culture of the day since Jules Verne published 20,000 Leagues in 1870. There'd be a lot of fear and speculation around them. In the morning of November 25th, a giant squid either attacked the ship or attached itself to the bow. Giant squids are documented as surfacing and or attacking ships according to the Museum of Unnatural Mystery. But they weaken when they're close to the surface. The Mary Celeste was 100 feet long, and an average giant squid would only be about 30 feet long and probably in a somewhat weakened condition. But it would still be big and strong enough to attach itself to the bow and squeeze the ship. Not enough to sink her, but the crew might not have known that. It could have also used its powerful beak to carve the grooves into the bow. The squid wouldn't have to eat anyone. It would have been enough to scare the captain and crew very badly. Its size, the noise of it chewing up the bow, the fact it's been hyped in Victorian culture. It would be terrifying, combined with the fact that Captain Briggs was a devoted Christian. He was faced with a demon that came out of nowhere, and there's no one there to help them. The Leviathan. Fearing what the creature would do and wanting to save his child, wife, and crew, this was enough to cause their forced evacuation. They gathered what they needed, positioning the sails and the lifeboat, trying to keep the squid as far from them as possible. Maybe the captain could rationalize that the squid would not ultimately sink the Mary Celeste, and tried to keep tethered to the ship, but the squid, or poor panicked planning, severed them, putting them adrift. 
So with what we know about the found condition of the Mary Celeste, that giant squids were known to be in the area in that time, and the nature of the captain himself, it's not entirely implausible that this could be the cause. So the Humboldt squid, which are very aggressive, we're going to talk about that here in a second, they can be around six feet long. And then the colossal squid, the Architeuthis, I think it is, can be up to 40 or 50 feet. Is that right? It maxes out 39 to 46 feet, depending on if it's male or female. So it's slightly larger than the giant squid. Right. This is <laughs> but, not, yeah. it's not something you want to meet. And we actually, the ARC has dug up a lot of stuff. Tess actually found some stuff on squid attacks that was amazing, and as, as did Marie, um, both team giant squid uh, proponents. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. I don't really see their tentacles reaching up on deck and plucking people off the deck like we were talking about. But <laughs> But these things are really aggressive. We found a a video which we're going – it's a recreation of an event that happened to a diver who was diving with the Humboldt squid, which are, like I said, only about six feet long. Not that only. Like if I saw that in the water, I'd be scared to death. Sure. This guy went down. He had a lot of experience diving, and it, but it was his first dive with Humboldt Squid, and he was down with his camera gear, and he was aggressively and violently attacked, and it was a coordinated attack. These things are incredibly smart. They were coming at him from different angles, attacking him from two sides at once. One of them, the beak, it was actually able to break his wrist. Another one hit him, he said, with just this force he couldn't imagine, and it dislocated his arm. And then another one grabbed his camera and pulled it away. So they're swimming all around. It's like a systematic attack. And then when they got all that stuff separated and his arm's dislocated and his wrist is broken, they start dragging him to the bottom. I mean, can you imagine (laughs) how scary that is? And so he's trying desperately to get away, and he did manage to make it back to the surface. But he was nearly killed by yeah, he got beaten up. This calamari, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> when they're small, they're yeah, delicious. When they attack like that, you know, you know one theory that I'd heard. It, it was a fascinating documentary on cephalopods. The reason they're so smart is they don't live very long, so they have to get smart ge- generation after generation after generation. Gets they have the ability to learn quickly. It's like the octopus that can. Uh, he learned how to unscrew the jar lid to get yes. his little fish bits out. Yeah. There's one that predicts soccer matches and I think presidential <laughs> elections. <laughs> right. And he was, uh, after he predicted poorly for a match, he was somehow killed. Ah. Yeah. Well, they didn't like his outcome. Yeah. But he guessed correctly. They're very smart. They're clever. And uh, one of my favorite deep sea creatures here is the triple wart sea devil. You ever seen that thing? It's very monstrous. No. I'm sure you have. Oh, it's okay. got, it's a tiny little ugly little fish. Sometimes called the angler fish. Oh, yes, another yes. Species. Of course, yeah, yeah. They have a little wormy rod that comes out of the top of their yes. head that's uh, got a bioluminescent tip to Yeah, there's one of those them. in Finding Nemo, I'm pretty sure. They're very frightening. Yeah. They have very long, sharp, spiky, clear teeth, I think. Why they're not that scary is that they're probably the size of a cantaloupe. You know, they're yeah. not that big. If this thing was 20 feet long... Oh my gosh, that would frighten anyone. The reason that they have these really long, sharp, spiky teeth is that they have to hang on to any prey that they get because at those depths, food is scarce. Right. Most of the fish aren't down there uh, because it takes a special kind of creature to live that deeply. So that's my point about the squid. Not only does it have that giant scary parrot beak. And it is a little like a parrot beak because they're cracking open a shellfish with it. According to the one report we watched, they can bite through Kevlar, of course your wetsuit, (laughs) your your, a limb. They could sever a a part of a limb because you have a lot of pressure. I think more pressure per square inch than an African lion and bite pressure. That's right. In the suckers, there are sharp rasps. So I imagine, I think it's a bone or calcium type, uh, very sharp protrusion because once they grab onto a piece of food, no matter what size, they got to hang on to it. And think about this. The beak is only 
at the center on the underside. It's a very strange, it's a giant head. Yeah. And, and, it, with, and there's a mouth around the, the ring of the mouth is all your arms. The whole thing is basically in a machine to pull food into this mouth. Yes, and the these squid have two extra long tentacles arms, for yeah. feeding right. that are longer than the other ones. They so their overall length is came from, it comes from the two super long ones that they use to grab you. Now, here, listen to this story, and people say, oh, well, when, have squid ever attacked a boat? Well, here is an actual BBC story from January 15th, 2003. The headline is, Giant Squid Attacks French Boat. Okay. All right, so check this out. French sailors taking part in the round-the-world Jules Verne trophy. Well, that sounds fun. Yeah, and it seems like a perfect event for this. Say they have come across one of the most elusive monsters of the sea, the giant squid. Veteran yachtsman Olivier de Cursesson who sailed from Brittany on Saturday, said that several hours into his voyage, he found that a giant squid had clamped onto the hull of his boat. The creature, scientifically known as Archituthis ducks, is the largest of all invertebrates. Scientists believe it can be as long as 18 meters or 60 feet. Olivier de Cursesson said the sighting occurred off the Portuguese island of Madeira. Madeira, I would say. Whatever it is. If you know what the right word is, don't email us about it. <laughs> I saw a tentacle through a portal. This is like straight out of a movie, right? Yeah. I saw a tentacle through a portal, Olivier de Cursesson said from his boat. It was thicker than my leg, and it was really pulling the boat hard. Mr. de Cursesson says two of the tentacles were blocking the rudder. Giant squid often feature in maritime legends and novels, including Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. But unlike Jules Verne's fictional Captain Nemo, Mr. de Cursesson did not have to fight with the monster and cut off its tentacles. The French sailor says the squid released its grip when he stopped the boat. Quote, we didn't have anything to scare off this beast, so I don't know what we would have done if it hadn't let go. We weren't going to attack it with our pen knives. <laughs> Mr. de Cursesson says the squid must have been 7 or 8 meters, 22 to 26 feet long. I've never seen anything like it in 40 years of sailing, he says. Giant squids are carnivorous mollusks who live deep under the sea. Only about 250 sightings, mostly of dead animals, have ever been recorded. This was as of 2003, by the way. Yeah. A giant squid measuring about 15 meters, or 50 feet, was found washed up on an Australian beach in July. A smaller one was caught by a trawler's net off the coast of Scotland a year ago. Keeping in mind, that's all from 2003. So here we do have an example yeah. of a squid attacking a ship. It wasn't plucking people off the ship. No. Or, I but it's certainly yeah. as aggressive as they were with that diver. I mean, I can see that happening if you're in the water. I, I don't see the squid performing well in terms of the out-in-the-air kind of activities. <laughs> exactly. I saw one eat a rocking chair once. No, that's, the, that's you know, animals, they don't often get what they're seeing, as smart as these cephalopods are. Yeah. A great example, I always use this, is I had a friend, uh, he went on safari with his wife, and uh, just his wife at the time, no kids. So they're all in one of those open-top Jeeps. Yeah. He starts to, hey, there's lions over there. Should we, he goes, just stay still. Just remain still. Don't make any sudden moves. Because there's a point where the lion will start to notice that, hey, there's six delicious, more juicy morsels in an open-top Jeep that I could pick off if you start individually moving. When it sees it by itself, it just thinks it's a big, fat animal with big, round legs. So my point with the squid is that it's attacking the ship, and I don't know if it knows it's food or not. It's aggressive to begin with. It's territorial. Yes. So it, it just attacks it. I don't think it's like, oh, if I sink this thing, that'll be a notch in my belt. Well, uh, there, and know. there's another video that Tess found that shows two squid violently attacking a 
a, a small submarine, two man submersible. Oh yeah, yeah. And they're just shooting ink out, and just they keep attacking oh, it. So they're they're aggressively. They're going violent. After it. Yeah, these things are violent, and they're violent yeah. on the diver. They're violent on this French boat. It's just it's something to think about yeah. for a team giant squid. I'm just <laughs> saying they they have some points in their corner. Yeah. Whether it could sink the ship or whether it's plucking people off one by one with its tentacles as they run around the deck in a panic, I don't know about that. All I know is that if a giant squid is attached to a boat and it is plucking off the crew members and I'm below deck, I am not going above deck. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no. But I mean, I don't know. I guess if you think she's, you know, the squid is going to squeeze it into toothpicks. Mm, I don't uh, know. Here's what I, quickly what I think as far as uh, no marine biologist here, but I did take oceanography in college. Oh, well, excuse me. There you go. So creatures that normally live at very great depths, which the giant squid does, as well as the colossal squid, it's slightly larger cousin, or maybe just, it's the same thing, <laughs> but it's a, it's slightly bigger. These things don't come up to the surface very often. And if they do, they're about to die. So there's been a couple of reports here in the last couple of years. Uh, I love when they show up in the paper or they are online here. You see pictures of them. Giant oarfish. You ever heard of those? Mm-hmm. They're very long, silvery, very freakish they look, looking. They look like a, long, a saw. Yeah. Like that a, you would cut yeah. like loggers used in the old days. Yeah. Just a yeah. Yeah, very long silvery ribbon, maybe 20 to maybe 30 feet at the most. That's probably the very longest. But let's say let's say 15 to 16 feet on average. They live at very great depths. When they surface or when people have ever discovered them, they are dying or dead. Yeah. So it, again, not the exact same thing as a giant squid, but if they are at the surface, near the surface, they're probably not in great shape. And maybe they're just like clamping onto the side of the ship for just like, I don't know what this is, but I, I need to hold on to something. Again, something to float with is better than nothing. Well, the other theory that is that they do battle with large sperm whales, which will attack them just as food. The first evidence of the giant squid was a couple of severed tentacles found inside a whale's belly yeah. in 1925. Okay. So, yeah, just chomp on it. The whale just says, you know, here's a giant plate of calamari I'm going <laughs> to chomp on. And on a, on a squid like that, that size, they have rasps on their suckers. So it's meant to really hold on to your prey. Yes. And so those scars have been found on the skin of sperm Of those whales. sperm whales, yeah. right. And Again, it's kind of a circular graded pattern, which I'm sure really stung. But you would expect to see some of that on the side of the ship. There were gashes near the bow, I believe. Yes, right? yes. That they thought, well, there's a little more testament to foul play here. But I think an experienced sea captain said, well, a Navy man just said, uh, well, it could just be natural, you know, getting battered around by the sea. Right. So for a large squid, it's not their natural habitat to hunt or reside. Yeah, they're not coming up unless they're no. And again, I think of their sightings, uh, it, it, you know, in the in the olden days, that uh, they, something had floated up and it was very scary looking, and you didn't know what it was, and maybe it's flailing around. Yeah, I don't think it's picking people off the deck. No, it's snack. not. We're not talking about a Moby Dick situation, <laughs> yeah, right? Which was a particularly vindictive whale. Yeah, it's an intelligent creature that it's got that's got it in for you. Yeah, yeah. although they're very smart. Speaking uh, cephalopods are very are very smart. Cuttlefish and squids. You know Herman Melville, who who wrote Moby. Speaking of which, yeah. did you know that Moby the singer was related to him? I did know that. A great, great uncle or something. Yeah. Yes. I, no, Weird. I did okay. So that covers most of the, you know, the Kraken theory. Wait a second. Are yeah. you, are you, so you're ruling out squid yourself. Yes. Okay. I'm, I <laughs> okay. am. I just, I just want to get a definitive I mean, if answer. it was, if it was two or three people, yeah. 
Yeah, the ten people all experienced at sea. Yeah, like it's a. Snack Why would plate. they all be on deck? Yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah, it's an yeah, hors d'oeuvre like tray. tray. Yeah, like a, yeah. <laughs> Ooh, that one was juicy. Yeah, well, the seat again—that's the most fanciful and uh, great for a book illustration. Just you know, several tentacles and people in the air flailing, and it's you know, it's got its angry eye cast yeah. upon the ship. Yeah, not, maybe not so much, but they do exist. Yeah, but you know, very rare. Very rare. And not we'll, on the we'll, surface. We'll have some video of that. Yeah, that was also posted in the arc, I think, uh, by Chris. Yes. Uh, some video of it uh, taken uh, 2014, I believe. The yes. first time it was captured. Yes. But again, at a very great depth. Yeah, and that was, that's maybe, very cool. Yeah, it is very cool to look at. So anyway, we'll have that on, on the in the show notes. Yes. All right, so let's move on to the last theory. Leviathan? Uh, uh, it, are you wrapping that into giant squid? No, It's kind of yeah. a different thing. Yeah, the Kraken. Kraken. I'm wrapping that into giant squid. The theory okay. that I think... Holds the most water. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. you. Um, So this is the theory of an explosion happening on board that caused the crew to believe they were in imminent danger of being blown up and forcing them to abandon very quickly. We'd like to remind everyone that there was a line found being dragged behind the Mary Celeste. Yes. As though something was tethered to the stern. However... There was nothing there. It was just a cut line or yeah. a broken line. I, I shouldn't say cut. No, right. But it, it did not, it was not connected to anything. Yes. Here's probably what is one of the most developed theories. And I would like to say that I personally came around to this theory based on research that the ARC did, including our scientist on board, Chris Cogswell, yeah. who actually did some experiments. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Which you should not try at home. No, no. absolutely not. <laughs> right. Just want to uh-huh. say that. But and it, and it wasn't just Chris. It was the whole arc. They were all sort of flushing this idea out. And I came around to thinking that this is probably what happened. I was then pleased to find that the definitive story of the Mary Celeste that was written by Charles E.D. Fay in, I believe, 1940-something, he came to the same conclusion. And I'm tending to agree with him, and I can say that I developed it before I read what his conclusion was, which I think is really interesting. So this all goes back to the denatured alcohol. I'm going to explain this as, uh, as briefly as I can. There were 1,701 barrels of the denatured alcohol, or methylated spirits as they call them. It's, it's essentially rubbing alcohol. It's not something you would want to drink. A lot of it was intentionally made so you wouldn't drink it yes. uh, to keep people from drinking it. Yes, it you drinking wouldn't, it. Yeah. you wouldn't, yeah, exactly. You wouldn't want to do that. And in addition to that, they used it for lacquer. So oh, it yeah. was it was a primary ingredient in lacquer. And everyone knows in the 1800s, everything was lacquered because all that stuff is still around and it's still lacquered. Yeah, <laughs> it looks, looks fantastic. <laughs> Were you saying it also went into fortified like cheap wines? Yes, that's yeah. right. And I did mention that in part one. They, yeah. did, they did use it sometime to fortify cheap wine. Very small percentage, I guess, to up the proof of the wine. Just undergoing blind stage. Yeah, yeah. your mad dog 2020. Strawberry yeah, Hill, exactly. Boone's Farm, Strawberry Hill, I think. That's is. right. Um, anyway. Thunderbird, yes. The 1,701 barrels should have all been white oak. Right. However, nine of them were red oak. You would think this wouldn't be that big a deal, but red oak is porous. White oak is not. White oak is a far better barrel for storing liquid in. It's less porous anyway, right? Yeah, Yeah, it's actually not really porous at all. In fact, the more pressure there is, the more it seals up. Right. Red oak, on the other hand... It has more issues with storing liquid, and it's not used anymore as a result of that. Yeah. Well, it's like the difference between a softwood and a hardwood. Right. Yeah. Well, one of the things that they 
mentioned when they discovered her, and also in the hearing, was that nine barrels of the alcohol were empty. Interesting, yeah. They weren't sure where this went. This is not alcohol you would drink. Right. We don't think that 10 people drank nine 50-gallon barrels yeah, of, no, of methylated no, alcohol. No. He, but, didn't, he didn't actually allow drinking of alcohol. No, he did not. The, this was a very... A straight arrow teetotaler. Exactly. Yeah. His father was a teetotaler. Yeah. There was no drinking on board. And you know, what they did for fun was they sang hymns. Oh, uh, Sarah had yeah. a melodeon and they would play oh, and sing. And it was a lot like Master and Commander. You know how they like to play. Yeah. It. <laughs> well, it's yeah, a great, great, great movie. The point is, nobody tipped into it. Yeah. And uh, it was Sam the wares, and also evaporation would not have happened that quickly unless it was to- maybe if it was totally open, but these barrels were still sealed, I believe. They were yes. just empty, right? Yes, they were empty. And so nobody knew where that alcohol went. The other thing is these nine barrels that were red oak, they might not have looked that different from yeah. the white oak. And the other thing that I can't find out and have been unable, I don't think the Ark found it anywhere, we don't really know where those nine barrels were. We don't know if they were mixed in or all together or they're, they're concealed right. by other barrels. I see. Maybe that exists somewhere, mm-hmm. but I haven't found it. And I haven't read Charles Edifay's book. Right. I've only read pieces of it, and maybe he's got it in there, but I did not see it anywhere. And with the barrels being older and having been used a while, it's possible you couldn't even tell the difference between the red oak ones and the white oak ones. Right. Another important fact to consider is that this was Captain Briggs's first time shipping alcohol. So he may have had some nervousness about it. It's obviously flammable. Everyone knows that. So there's some debate over what they might have done had they found that something was going on down there. And what we believe happened is that the fumes were, as the alcohol was sloshing around in these barrels, the fumes were escaping through the wood into the hold. Right. These fumes would have been dangerous and highly, highly flammable. And they could have possibly created a sort of flashpoint explosion. And this is what Chris did in his YouTube video. We're going to provide the URL for that with this show in the show notes. He is a scientist, by the way, an actual scientist. We're not just saying that. He <laughs> right. works in a lab. Yeah. This is not something that I want to hear anyone trying at home. We do not condone it. And in fact, I made him publish it under his own podcast, <laughs> right. which he has one. Yeah. I'd like to point out that he's just gotten off the ground called – the Mad Scientist podcast. So you can check that out, but you will see this uh, video that he made where he took some vodka as a substitute for methylated alcohol, and he put it in a glass jar with some paper, and then he shook it up to get some vapors going to have some evaporation, and then he lit it and dropped the glass lid back down on the top, and the lid vibrates. You can hear it going, it's a little, it's pretty amazing for such a small experiment. It actually made a decent little explosion in this little bottle. What's really fascinating about it is the fire exists only for a fraction of a second, and there is no scorching of the paper in the bottle. There is no damage to anything in the bottle. So is it possible that when the Mary Celeste was hitting the rough seas, which they documented that she had been through rough seas before she got to the Azores, the alcohol is shaking around inside these barrels. In the porous barrels, the fumes are coming out, and they're gathering up in the hold. At some point you have static electricity building up too. Now, this is the thing about static electricity. There are all different kinds of ways that it can develop at sea. I don't know if anybody here has seen the Hunt for Red October, but when they bring the helicopter down to put Jack Ryan onto the submarine, one of the first things they're like is like, be careful, you got to ground him first. got this big hook 
or don't let it ground you, excuse me, because the, there's so much static from the rotors on the helicopter that a person yeah. getting off the helicopter onto the submarine, has, it's a huge charge, can actually kill you. Yeah. yeah. The static builds up. It can build up from powders. It can build up from liquids sloshing around. It builds up any time the charge is unequal between two items, and one gets more positively charged. And then when the static discharges, it's to neutralize the charge. Chris has got to correct me on the way I'm explaining all this. So with the liquid sloshing around, it is possible for that just in itself, by itself, inside the barrel to create a static charge. We also have the barrels themselves on their racks. We have the ship tossing and turning. There's all different kinds of ways that static could start. We have men smoking pipes on board, although I would bet they weren't really doing that in the hold. No, I think that was probably frowned upon. Yeah, but against OSHA. But they had pipes. Yes. So they were smoking at some point because it was they were left behind. Right. What possibly could have happened is if she was in rough seas, the fumes come out into the hold, and at some point the static from the liquid sloshing or whatever was igniting and caused an explosion that may very well have blown those hatches off. Yes. The problem is, I don't know exactly how the layout of the ship works, but the main hold hatch, which is a big hatch, was not blown off. But the littler hatches, the lazarette and the other hatches, were blown off. Right. Was there a connection between the space and the hold and where these other hatches were that would, the pressure would have gone out that way? Would it have been a low enough amount of pressure to cause those hatches to blow? Yes, Chris had has done some calculations, and he's like, yes, this could have been happening. But one of the revelations that he had... Uh, as we were trying to determine the likelihood of this, and if chemically and scientifically it was plausible, which it entirely is, it might not have been one large explosion. Yeah. It, it might have been a series of them. Right. Now, at this point, you say Captain Briggs and his crew are looking like they keep hearing these loud bangs coming from the hold. They've got almost 2,000 barrels of fuel in there, and the ship has – some of the hatches have blown off, or maybe they opened them to ventilate. It hasn't ever been made clear to me if those hatches were – damaged from an explosion or if they were opened manually the point is they were upside down on the deck right they could have does seem like they were blown off they were not properly stowed yeah so there's some debate or removed in a hurry or moved in a hurry discarded to the side which maybe they did to ventilate right that's another theory too is is just overwhelming fumes exactly it was an attempt to fumigate or or to relieve the fumes uh, from the hold the captain then thinks well this is a very dangerous situation Maybe we should get off the ship for a bit, let it air out, and then get back on board. Exactly. That's another theory. That's another theory. Uh, In the type of explosion, you think like, well, wouldn't that cause damage? Not necessarily, because Andrea Sella of the University College of London also did an experiment for Channel 5, kind of a a new show there, back in 2006, and he used butane. Yes. He recreated the hold of the ship, and he was using cardboard to kind of uh, represent the barrels, and it created an explosion. But what happened was, it, as he described, it was a pressure wave type of explosion. So you have a ball of flame, and you have a, a big shock and a bang there, but no real burns. Nothing right. was burned or singed. No soot was found. Right. And uh, it basically burns itself out. So after this blast of hot air you know, coming out, then you have relatively cool air following it. So Exactly. Yeah. And this would explain, you know, they said when the and, – and Frederick Solly Flood, who conducted the investigation in Gibraltar and his other people noted, there were no fumes when she came in. It's like, well, no. By then, first of all, they may have burned off instantly yeah. from the explosions. Second of all – they would have evaporated out anyway after right. several days at sea. Yeah. So then you have to decide, okay, well, what happened to them? Well, you have to look. Captain Briggs is on the ship with his wife and child and these seven crew members. And 
if these explosions are happening regularly, just imagine it's boom, 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 they're just happening. Yeah. Every, who knows how often, because things are sloshing around, the fumes are leaking out of the eight barrels. They don't know, maybe they can't identify that nine right. of the barrels are red oak. All they know is something is wrong in the hold, and as far as they're concerned, they have 1,701 barrels yeah. that are all having an issue. Yeah. It's time to get off the ship, especially with your two-year-old daughter. you got to think how he would do this. I'm sure first, you know, being the captain, he's got to get his toddler off with his wife, or at least secure them. So, again, if it's a sea quake, you're hearing a huge rumbling. Yes. If it's... An explosion of fumes temporarily, and maybe you even see a blast of hot orange flame come out. You're thinking like, okay, this is this is the start of this. Uh, whatever time we have left, we got to start moving here. Yes. So they don't know how much is on fire. If a fire is building, if there's going to be more explosions. But like I said, so that could be sea quake. There's a lot of rattling. If there's an explosion, there's a lot of rattling of barrels. Uh, they know enough that once a little, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. There's no, actually no smoke or <laughs> yeah. anything here. Or so, so that's the horrible thing to it, say. It was, yeah. But, you know what I'm saying? Like where, where, there's a, where there's a problem, more are sure to follow. So yeah. let's get everybody off. And I would leave, you know, if there were any volunteers of the crew, to be the last ones on, of course, the last ones to depart, or maybe the first ones on after the all clear signal was had happened. But So something happened in between that span of time. Right. Getting off the ship. And deciding, like, it's all clear, let's try and get back on. Well, yeah, and, and to this point, it's, this is what we think might have happened. They got onto the yawl, they took some of the charts, they took navigational gear, they tied her to a line, and she was towing behind them Mary Celeste. Yeah. At points, who knows, maybe a brave crew member would get back on board and set a sail or something. Right. You know, they're not wanting to part with all this cargo and the ship. But at the same time, they don't want to stay on board, so they're on this line out behind her in case she explodes. Yeah, yeah. However, maybe a squall comes up, a storm, maybe a water spout comes and hits the yawl. Maybe there was a sea quake at that point. Maybe it was a confluence of bad events. And a lot of times with a disaster, it takes three things happening. Right. Maybe the first thing was the the fumes were causing explosions. Then they got off in the yawl. Then and once they were in the yawl, they somehow got separated from the vessel, and then there was a squall, and they were lost forever. Could it have been something as simple as the tow line coming undone? No, that's a little poor seamanship there. But well, what? in theory, yeah, that could have been because they would have not been in a position to catch her if she no, still they, had sails rigged when they got off, and the sails yeah. were rigged. Right. Now, the yawl uh, itself has, I know some have sails. I'm not sure about this. Uh, we don't know. We, I, we think this one might have just been a rowing, a rowboat. Then you're not catching the ship. You're not going to catch it. Yeah. If something, it's just like we said about becoming separated from your craft. Like, yeah, you're not going to catch who's it. Who's holding the line? Oops. Yeah. Suddenly but someone's going to yeah. be on watch. There's no question that somebody's, there's going to be someone awake 24 hours a day. Still, if that line breaks and the sails are up, and maybe that's what happened. Maybe they were like, we got to get off. We got to get off now. Yeah, the explosions right. are going off all below deck. They can hear the explosions going off, rapid succession. They're trying to get off before the whole thing goes up. They get everyone into the yawl. They drag her out behind. And then almost immediately something goes where they get separated. That one line, that lifeline, the only line they have that connects them to survival comes loose. Yeah. Or they come loose from it. Right. And the Mary Celeste sails off towards the horizon – Never blows up, never sinks, and now they're at sea in this yawl 400 miles from Portugal or 400 miles from the Azores. And for whatever reason, they never 
show up anywhere. Right. Which, again, in my estimation, is not so unusual. It's a big ocean out there. But imagine this, the horror that would be somehow the line comes loose, and now it's you're being separated like several feet per second. Somebody jumps in after it. What do you do then? You can't even row enough to catch the guy who's holding onto the, the line. Then he's got to let go, get back into the lifeboat, and then that's it. This thing's sailing away. And the other thing that's interesting is that, which Flood did not believe at the time, is how fast that boat could have traveled in the amount of time that it was found abandoned. So strong currents around in that area. Yes. So this thing's on its own, even even if it's uh, there's not much wind. It's moving at a pretty good clip. That's right. Yeah. She was still found on her way to Gibraltar. Yeah, not sailing very Yawing, well. But, yeah. but headed for her on her original course with not a soul aboard. Here's the thing. Overall, the ship had a very dark history before, during, and after, pretty much from start to finish. It's its whole life. Yeah, so here's the, the question, though, is if you believe in this kind of thing with curses, when did the curse start? Did it start when they changed the name, which was a bad omen and bad form? Yeah. Or did it start with this mysterious disappearance? Either one, you know, I don't know what befell the other one if it was, because it was fine for a while up until, te- you know, Captain Briggs took it over. There were some minor things happening. Yeah, but let's talk about the deaths. There was more than, first we had the very first captain, which we mentioned, Captain McClellan, who fell ill on the maiden voyage and died, a yeah. relatively young man. All three of these deaths tied to the Mary Celeste were premature. Here's the other thing. We failed to mention the third guy who died unexpectedly, <laughs> a third right. captain of the Mary Celeste after she was found abandoned. What was his name again? Yeah, so this is Captain Edgar Tuthill. And how people knew about him is that, you know, granted, after this bad incident happens, the ship is reported in the shipping news, its whereabouts. So in 1879, it was reported on the island of St. Helena. St. Helena is out in the middle of nowhere. It's, you know, between uh, North America and uh, Europe or Africa. So it's kind of like a, a dot but it's a good stop stopover point. So he gets sick. They dock there for a bit, and he dies just a few days later, I think, after they dock there. Right. A third premature death associated with the ship. Now, but at the time, people were getting sick at sea. It was... Well, that's weird, like... You know. <laughs> yeah, actually, you remember, I was going to mention... Uh, here's a spot to mention this. The Lazarette Hatch. Oh, yeah. Do you know where that come, that term comes from? Actually, I don't. Okay, well, here's a quick little aside where an interesting thing that has to do with sailing and death. <laughs> so the word Lazarette, which is the Lazarette Hatch, had its origins in the story of Lazarus of Bethany in the Gospel of John in chapter 11 in the Christian Bible. So, and I'm sure you've heard this story where Jesus brings back Lazarus from the dead after he's, he's been dead for four days and, and starting to get right. Yeah. He's restored to life. The word is also closely connected to lazaretto, which is, I, I believe, a, an Italian word for a quarantine that they used to put people in that were coming from sea journeys. Because when you arrived on ship, and when we talked about this earlier, Greyfriars, you have a boat arriving and half the people have the plague. Right. So you want to avoid that, or they're leprous. You put them in a lazaretto, which could be a, a building offshore. It could be a ship that's permanently anchored somewhere, mm-hmm. uh, just separated from the mainland people, just to wait it out a while, see if anybody gets sick. Okay. So those are the two terms, yeah, both related to Lazarus from the Bible. But the Lazaret hatch is is usually a large below-deck hatch at the bow of the ship, and the reason is because in these old square rig sailing ships, People died a lot on these journeys, so you had to put you had to put the, the body somewhere. Now, this is usually for VIP passengers and high-ranking crew members. If you were a low-ranking crew member, they just heaved you over the side, mate. 
Right. Uh, burial at sea, which I personally prefer rather yeah. than stinking in a, in a, in a wooden <laughs> box up near the front of the ship. I'd rather be, uh, so why was it, why was it at the front? The wind is pushing you, and these old ships really had uh, very little ability to tack into the wind. So you're basically, your rotting bodies are now downwind of you rather than the stench blowing from the front to the back. So same thing with the head, right. uh, which is the toilet on an old ship. Those were usually placed near the bow or right. the head. That's where the term comes from. Yeah. Uh, you got to use the head. It's up at the front because... Again, the wind is blowing from the back, from the stern towards the bow, blowing the stink away from you. Away from And you. also, uh, with the head, usually they would cut channels near the floor so that the wave action would come up and kind of wash the thing out. Right. Naturally. Here's another interesting, sort of like a final aside in the story of yeah. the Mary Celeste. Clive Cussler, the, f- oh, yeah. the famous author who's written so many you know, treasure stories and that sort of thing. I'm sure everybody has probably heard of him. If you haven't, you can Google him. He claimed to have found the Mary Celeste just a few years ago in Haiti, or the wreckage of the Mary Celeste. Right. And it was announced that it had been found. But it turns out the wood was found as being from a much later date. And right. also from Georgia, the state of Georgia. I yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's interesting that they can pinpoint it from the trees from what state. Now, they think that the dating may have matched up with the retrofitting True. Of, of the Mary Celeste. But I believe that it, even then, looking at it, it didn't kind of line up. Right. But in any case, yeah. Death he made a big a, announcement. <laughs> yet another curse. About, they, oh, oh, we found it. We found the Mary yeah, Celeste. Yeah. Nope, you didn't. No, you haven't. It's uh, still sailing. Now, you may, <laughs> you somewhere, it co- possibly. Yeah. You may know uh, this, or you may not. Sorry to put you on the spot here, but where did it get forgotten? Where it just kind of... In Haiti. Okay, so it was left there. On the reef. Uh, yeah. yeah, outside of Port-au-Prince. Ah, okay, so that's, yeah, I couldn't remember this uh, portion, though. And, but that, what, and that gentleman who perpetrated that scam with the rubber boots... He also met a fate that was not so kind. Aside from being yeah. charged with baritry, which is the crime of running a ship aground on purpose. Yeah, willfully casting it away. Yes. Yeah. And but punishable at the time by death. Yes. So there's no slack charge here. But what happened to him and his cohorts that worked on that scam? I think he got relieved of the charge of baritry. But it ruined his career, of course, because, you know, he's a, he's a scam artist. So a few months after this all happens, he goes totally broke and I think dies in poverty one of his co-conspirators went mad, as they say, and another one killed himself. All right. There you go. Still more bad luck, bad mojo associated with this ship. Well, here's the bottom line. It's our opinion that the Mary Celeste was abandoned in the interest of self-preservation, and the captain took his family and crew aboard the lifeboat, which they tethered to the vessel in the hope that the Mary Celeste would survive the frequent small explosions on board. Only they tragically became separated from her and lost at sea forever. You know, there's a great quote by Jules Verne that seems appropriate here. Put two ships in the open sea without wind or tide, and at last they will come together. Throw two planets into space, and they will fall one on the other. Place two enemies in the midst of a crowd, and they will inevitably meet. It is a fatality, a question of time. That is all. That's going to wrap up our series on the Mary Celeste. Thank you for joining us. 
We'll be back in two weeks on August 31st with a new show. We'd like to thank tonight's sponsors, Blue Apron, Stamps.com, Indochino, and The Great Courses Plus. You can now find easy links to all of their offers at astonishinglegends.com slash sponsors. Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, Tumblr, Google+, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. Good night.